Okay, it looks like we have a good group, so let's get started with the Nokar Mantra. Om Namo Arihantanam Om Namo Sipsanam Om Namo Ayariyanam Om Namo Vajayanam Namo Luvesavasahunam Yesu Panchanamo Karo Sava Pavapanasano Mangalalancha Savaisim Paramam Havay Mangalam Paramam Havay Mangalam Thank you everybody for coming today. We um, always try to keep well, the main focus of this class is to get Jainism out of the textbook and out of the classroom and into our life. And also I think a lot of times we can get caught up in kind of the minutia of Jainism that is, oh, how many heavens are there and how many hells are there? And whereas we, and, and that's fun. I like to do that. Um, I like to think about that. But the value to the group is how to change your life, right? So the only thing you need to remember uh, as far as Jainism is to reduce your anger, ego, deceit, and greed. If you concentrate on doing that, everything else follows. Uh, ahimsa follows, anikanthvad follows, how many heavens and hells there are follows. So everything follows. The only thing you have to remember is to try to reduce your anger, ego, deceit, and greed. And I feel like we've did a deep dive into anger twice now. And if you don't, um, if you weren't there for those sessions, they're easily available um, on the website. And so now it's time to do a deep dive into ego. So that's what we're going to talk about today. And before we get into what the book says, and the book has quite a lot to say, I'd like to start off with a controversial, uh, a thought-inspiring problem, and hopefully get your feedback on it. The problem with ego is that the world is telling us one thing while Jainism is telling us another thing. That is, the world is telling us the rules of the game are one way and Jainism is telling us the rules of the game are another way. Specifically, the world is constantly bombarding us with positive reinforcement about ego. That is, a confident person is attractive. A confident person is self-assured. A confident person is successful at work and socially. A confident person can be confident without being arrogant. A confident person is a good leader. So that's the, those are the things the world is telling us. And the world is reinforcing our positive ego. But Jainism is telling us that having an ego is bad. So this is the problem. To most people, it's a no-brainer when their immediate surroundings are telling them the rules of the world are one way and a dead prophet whose teachings we are learning from a book written down ages ago and as the result of the longest game of multilingual telephone ever played is telling us the rules of the world are the exact opposite way. It's a no-brainer who you're going to believe, and it's a no-brainer how you're going to act. Because as we know, the brain has, uh, is very bad at long-term planning, and is very good at short-term planning, and dealing with the immediate problems around us. 
So my question to you is, how do we reconcile this? The world is telling us that an ego is good, and Jainism is telling us that an ego is bad. And I'd like to hear from you. First of all, I, I, I never qualify that ego as a positive ego or negative ego. Ego to me is an ego. Um, the way you put it sounds like uh, either way we, we qualify um, the, the ego from, from self-perspective. Um, not sure. I still have to digest the positive ego versus negative ego. Is that, is that what you meant by when you say the world is saying positive ego is good? I'm saying that the world is telling us to be confident people and reinforcing that by making us more money, making us attractive with the opposite sex, making us um, feel better, making us live longer. The world is telling us to have an ego. And Jainism is not. Anybody else? So one thought I have when I think about it is, you know, I, I'm sure ego has a, a lot behind it. But just for example, word that we're thinking about or comparing right now, the way I perceive it is the destination for Jainism and world is two different destinations. Jainism is telling us to, you know, not have ego to accomplish something at one place. I mean, you know, it's about moksha, it's about a better human being. And uh, the quest right now for the society and, you know, being confident, being able to do things is to achieve more and more wealth. And, and most not even just a wealth, maybe more monetary gains, financial gains, uh, is the is the idea. And and absolutely they get recognized who is confident, who is uh, sometimes even arrogant. I mean, there are leaders who are so arrogant, uh, they get respected and, and considered as a role model. But uh, without going too much into detail, you know, I think it's, it's two different destinations uh, uh, that kind of takes whether you, you really carry ego with you or not, is what matters. So, so being confident to, to know what you're doing is right, to know what you are doing uh, will take you to where you want to be, and to be confident that what the beliefs that you're following is the right belief, how could that consider as an ego? Right. So there are two ideas that you guys have expressed. The first is that the intention and the end result are totally different. So it's not that there are two sets of rules and we have to pick one. It's that there are two sets of rules and they go in different places depending on where you want to go. If you want worldly renown, if you want money, if you want to be viewed as a success object, as a desirable person, then the world is telling you to do this. And Jainism is telling you if you want to free your soul from karma and achieve nirvana, you have to do this. 
And the two don't have to be mutually exclusive because Jainism doesn't care whether you're a uh, successful person. Jainism doesn't care whether you're uh, doing well at work or doing well with other people. Jainism doesn't care if you're a good leader or not. Um, but the fact is that what the quality of life, Jainism doesn't, what that leads to is that Jainism doesn't care about your quality of life. Jainism would rather you do as much as you can to get rid of all your karma and have a very poor quality of life compared to, well, I guess the definition of quality of life would come into play. Jainism would say, well, if you're doing all you can to get rid of your karma and you've done it 10 times more than this guy, but you're still homeless or you're living in a field or you have no relations with anybody, your quality of life is indeed better even though most people wouldn't say that. So that's a very good and important point. Um, uh, the other point that was mentioned, Bhavan, can you say your point again, please? Yes, so when, when we say we are confident that what we believe is the right belief and what we, where we are walking the path on, that path is the right path, being confident, how can that be an ego? Right, so the other point was the intention matters. That is, the intention with which you do things is the difference between uh, I, I, what, what Bhavan is calling positive ego and negative ego. That is, the intention of why you want to be a confident person. Like, if you are a confident person because you know Jainism is true and you're acting with what you're true and you have no worries and other people perceive you as a confident person, that's different then if you're a confident person because you were told that's the rules of the game and you want to do that because you want to advance at work. So the same actions can have uh, different results because of the intentions behind them. So I think those are two very good and important points. And this is the fundamental thing that we are going to have to wrestle with um, when this is the crux of the matter we're going to have to wrestle with when we start talking about ego. So good, now that I got your brains working, let's see what the book says about ego. The book says you conquer ego via humility. And of course, we are going to conquer our enemies using weapons. And what are our weapons that we use? Um, the main weapon we use to conquer ego is humility. The book says uh, humility is an inherent virtue of the soul. That is, an ego is something that is on top of it that is not an inherent virtue of the soul. So how do you develop over, uh, humility? Um, first, you have, we have to understand the eight types of ego. Okay? There's the pride of knowledge. That is, you're proud, you have an ego because you have vast amounts of knowledge. The second is the pride of worship. When you have... Um, The pride of worship means other people worship you, that is, being famous, being a celebrity. The pride of family, so if, you're if your family is doing very well, if your relatives are high-ranking people, that's the pride of family, and you, you're proud of that fact. The pride of race, if you're born into a high socioeconomic class or a noble family, that's the pride of race. The pride of power. If you're youthful and you're muscular and you have a grand eloquence and you have a sweet voice, that is the pride of power. The pride of accomplishment. Uh, if you have attained superhuman achievement, then you have the pride of accomplishment. 
the pride of austerity. That is, if you are great at fasting, prayers, swadhyaya, you, uh, it's a type of vanity. It's the pride of austerity. And the pride of your body. If you have a beautiful body, if your body is proportionate, if you have great eyes or great ears or a great nose, then that's the pride of body. So it's important to know the things that you can be proud of. And these, if you, if you consider all eight together, they're everything, right? They're, they're, as, they're everything that you can be proud of in your life. So... How does staying positive tie into this? Regardless of, you know, what people say, that may help. Instead of being negative about things, you know, I'm overweight, I don't do this, I don't do that, is that considered also ego, being positive? Right. So we're talking about the pride of austerity, right? So if you... Can you tell me the difference between positive and negative? So if I'm proud of, let's say, the uh, tap that I did. Let's say I did fasting for 14 days, and I'm, and I'm proud of that, and I boast about that. Is that what you're calling positive pride? Some, yeah. Um, you don't I guess you, if you boast about it, I guess you're building ego, but if you're... Uh, so I'll just use an easy example. Right? Some people say, even though they're big or large or whatnot, they might still consider, you know, um, nothing, they don't want to portray the negative side because the negative becomes more your health, well-being, your mindset becomes uh, demoralized. You actually may, you know, become worse. Versus if you just continue to stay positive, um, the mind is more happy, your life is happy, and you, can, you know, you're in a positive mindset versus a negative mindset, right? Right. So, uh, is that kind of helping building your ego as well? Certainly. And but there we need to recognize there are two things in your example. There's the truth and there's the judgment about the truth. And the judgment about the truth can go either way. The truth is I'm a fat person. Okay? Now, my judgment about the truth is I'm a fat person. I love it. You know, I love life. I'm doing the best that I can. I'm trying to do this, I'm trying to do that, and life is, I'm moving in the right direction. And then there's the negative part, where like, I'm no good, I'm worthless, I can't do anything, I can't have the willpower to stop eating, and things like that. Now, the judgment on the truth can change, right? But, but the thing to recognize is that the truth is the same in both instances. So, now, having that in mind, um, how does it relate to ego? Are you saying that one is better, the positive one is better, and that reinforces ego, and the negative one is worse, or vice versa? By the first one, the positive okay. reinforces the ego, but it seems like it's something to stay positive without broadcasting it in there. You know, showcasing, I understand, but maintaining that positive mindset, is that considered like a Ah, I see. Okay, I think I understand the question. We all know the benefits of a positive mindset, but that is that a problem because I need an ego to have a positive mindset to change my life? Yeah. Hmm. Okay, so a any comments on that from anyone else? How do I maintain a positive mindset but not fall into the trap of having an ego? Like 
Ashley said. I think if we do that without posting ourselves, without you know constantly talk about it, uh, the positive mindset is essential to stay on your path, to stay on what you do um, compared to the negative part. So uh, as long as we do not uh, constantly talk about it, I think uh, that will help in the definition when we talk about the ego. Right. And I think what we talked about before is the answer to your question. That is the intention you have behind behind it. If your positive mindset is, I'm improving my life, I'm doing this, I'm doing that, and I, I have a good intention because I want to get rid of all the karma, I want to live long and get rid of all my karma and use my time wisely, then that is not a problem. That is not a type of ego that we need to um, eliminate. But if your attitude is, I need to keep my positive mindset so I can be better than other people, so I can um, have the best kind of life that I want, so I can make the most money, so that I can attract the most people, then that's going to be the type of ego that we want. It's that your intention behind that positive mindset. I think that's the answer uh, that we're looking for there. Okay. So let's talk about types of humility. You can have humility of right knowledge. That is, treating the knowledge you have acquired and the things that give you knowledge with devotion, honoring them, contemplating them, and putting in the self-effort to acquire them and put it into practice. That's the humility of samyatnya, or right knowledge. You can have the humility of right belief. That is, you respect the right faith, you have respect for people who have faith, and you have respect for people who make the effort to have the right faith. Next, we have the humility of right conduct, or charitya vine. That is, you respect the right conduct, you have respect for the people who have the right conduct, and you have respect for the effort it takes uh, by the people who practice the right conduct. Next, we have the humility of right austerity, or tap vine. That is, you have respect for the right austerity, you have respect for the people who have the right austerity, and you have respect for the effort it takes to practice the right austerity. So a lot of the same verbs here. Next, we have humility toward the spiritual leaders and great people. That is, remember the Panchpormesti. Um, we are polite to everyone, we bow before them, we offer them a seat. When they're passing by, we stand up with respect, and we behave themselves in, behave ourselves in their presence. And we have the vine of man vachankaya, that is mind, speech, and body. So these are the ways we can put humility into practice and therefore defeat our enemy, the ego. So what are the benefits to adopting humility in your life? We talked about, well, there may not be benefits. But if you look at the big picture, there are benefits. But there, the world may not give you benefits. Rather, karma, or the lack thereof, would give you benefits. So let's see if these are real benefits that the book lists. When we practice humility, we become considerate of other people's inconveniences. Our speech becomes softer and courteous, not authoritative, not aggressive, and not without hidden intent. When we are hum uh, humble... 
we have a loving conduct and we have a spirit of tolerance and we learn to apologize when we make a mistake. When we are humble, real greatness starts emerging and boasting ends. We start seeing the positive side of others rather than the negative side. We learn to respect others as our equals and we give up the habit of comparing ourselves with others. This is the, the big one for me. Um, that is, when we respect, when we don't put ourselves above other people and we respect the people um, where they are and what kind of effort they're doing, we start to understand they might be putting in more of an effort than I do to get worse results, right? This is like saying, this is like nobody ever makes fun of the fat guy at the gym, right? He knows there's a problem. He's doing what it takes to address the problem and we're proud of him and we want to encourage him. You know, we don't want to humiliate him. We don't want to do things. And in fact, he may be expending more effort at the gym to get less results than we do. And that's where this can start to seep in your life. When you see everybody like that, when you see everybody, the amount of effort that everybody puts in, uh, that can really start changing your life and making you think in a different way. I is replaced by we. There's no presumption about what is right and wrong. Just as trees rich in fruits hang low, similarly, people with true humility always look humble. Like sugar and milk, if humility is associated with knowledge, one attains real greatness. I don't know about that example. Sugar and milk. I guess it's from a, a different time. Humility is the root of the process of purification. I believe that. It is, it is the necessity for social, professional, intellectual, mental, and spiritual prosperity. So some of these things are benefits uh, more than others. Humility is the king of all characteristics. Ego destroys everything we work for. Humility should be synchronized in all three phases, action, speech, and thinking. Without humility, one cannot have the right knowledge. Without right knowledge, one cannot have the right faith. Without right faith, one cannot have the right conduct. Without right conduct, one cannot achieve moksha. Okay, so these are the things the book says how humility will change your life. Does anybody agree or disagree? Remember, we're trying to take this out of the classroom, right? So imagine being more humble in your life. Are you going to be, uh, do you want to speak softer? Do you want to be more courteous? Is that an end goal for you? Is that something that's good? Um, I wrote down a question. Uh, earlier we were kind of going into positive or negative. Um, is ego need, needed? And I, I, the argument I want to make is ego is not needed at all, whether it's positive or negative, to achieve the destination that Jainism is trying to lead us. The difficult, now if we come out of Jainism and talk about real life, we, uh, I, I think the way it's been perceived and the way the training is happening, whether it's uh, uh, you know, leadership training at your work or you know, we are training our kids, to be more confident, to be more, uh, you know, perception of more confident. And I don't think, oh, that comes without ego. We can describe that as a positive ego, 
But at some point in time, I think it's going to cross a limit. And you can't, I mean, because it's a fine line, nobody has defined it perfectly. So my, my, my thought right now is that the, to achieve the destination that we, in, in journalism perspective, I think we have to have a no ego. Uh, we should not even, you know, the positive positivity should come from positive activities. If I'm fat, I shouldn't be thinking that I'm okay with the way I am. Uh, and I, it should not be even thought because I'm focusing on other positive activity, whether it's meditation, tapas uh, charya, and all the other things, whatever it is. And, and this is not even a, a topic for me to feel confident and lift myself. Uh, but that that's kind of what I'm thinking. I mean, I don't, if we take the desire for monetary and financial and, uh, you know, to get a fame or wealth, then ego is not needed. Other thoughts? I agree on uh, humility, or humility. Um, being, as they say, um, forget the haters, whatever you're doing, uh, just continue doing it, uh, don't mind. If someone has something not nice to say or doesn't agree or whatever you're preaching or doing, um, continue on and uh, be courteous and kind and not ignoring them, right? Because if you don't like what they have to say, you continue doing it. It does help support uh, positive mindset. Uh, I don't want to call it ego, but continuing to do the good. If what you believe, your good intentions are uh, going to lead you in the right path, if someone is saying something negative or demoralizing you, then uh, ignoring it and just agreeing to disagree and move on. So the book says this is the difference between punya and expressing your soul without getting punya. As we know, pap is the attraction of negative karma to your soul that corrupts the soul. Punya is the attraction of positive karma that um, binds to your soul and then gives you good outcomes when they come to fruition. And we start when we start our spiritual spiritual path. We want to do as much punya as possible, right? Because those are those activities won't corrupt the soul, but it's still bad because we're attracting karma to our soul. As we pass a threshold of spiritual advancement, we want to stop doing punya too. We've already stopped doing pop, then we want to stop doing good, attracting good things. But here's the key that we're all going to have to try to understand. That doesn't mean we stop doing good actions. It, mean, it means something different. And here's how the book puts it. That is, when we want to stop doing punya, but still continue to do good deeds. Such aspirants should not have the feeling of accomplishment and attachment, even to meritorious deeds. A spiritually advanced person's activities and deeds are always meritorious, without the feelings of attachment to those activities. That is, if they have those feelings, they will receive no punya. They're still doing good and meritorious deeds, but they're not receiving punya for it. But here's my question to you. Why should I do good and meritorious deeds without an attachment to it? That is, what is the point of doing a good deed if I'm not invested in the outcome of it? Do 
the book seems to say, well, do good deeds and don't worry about, uh, We under, I understand, okay, don't worry about boasting about it or don't worry about, um, uh, don't worry about bringing yourself up or putting other people down because you do a good deed. I totally get that. But the book is saying don't be attached to those good deeds. That is, don't be invested in the outcome. Just do the good deed and then you won't, because you're not invested in the outcome, you won't attract Bob and you, you certainly won't attract Bob and you won't attract Punya either. But why should I give a homeless man money to alleviate his suffering if I'm not concerned about that suffering? The book seems to say, well, I don't really care. I'm just giving the man the money. I'm doing the good deed. But why would I be giving them the money if I didn't care about alleviating his suffering and not invested in the outcome of helping him build himself up? But could this be looked at it a little differently? For instance, um, let's say we are right now in the phase where compared to others, you feel like much more blessed and much more um, elevated if you want to compare that way. Uh, let's say hurricane passes through, we all, you know, kind of dodge the bullet and all of a sudden we start talking about, you know, you know, this because of the good, good karma, whatever we want to talk about. And we constantly say those things that, oh, I, I have a better, you know, because of my previous good karma, I am in a better shape. So I, I think probably I will read it in that sense that when the good karma comes and uh, the conclusion and we, we sense that fulfillment and if you keep uh, at the same time if you keep yourself at par not not too much deviate from your uh, level whether it is a good karma come in play or bad karma come in play when you are suffering or when you are having an enjoyment you still remain at par somebody happy uh, charity is always good you know we know that posting about that is not good uh, but when you feel about something that is good happening to you at that time if you continue stay at level plane then I think maybe that's what I would look into that these does it make sense like, yeah. I, I think so and I think uh, I Iron, and uh, one of the first few episodes talks about become a, you know, when Ram asks his uh, guru about, uh, you know, karmas, and he, his guru tells him that become a karta, not bhokta, whether you're doing right or wrong, and I think it's very similar here, and I, I want to take a example that, uh, Timothy, I think you, you picked up, well, first the reason I, I think is when you give a homeless person something, and if you know if you feel good that's one thing but first if you even connect to his emotions if you feel good it can involve a lot of different things that you know you understand his suffering and that you consider how blessed you are and you did a positive thing and there's a lot of things can be associated with it so there's a positive karma that's associated with that action and there is some other feelings that is also generated from that uh, from that activity uh, so there could be two things. 
So if you, let's say you, in a positive way, you accepted only positive feelings out of it. So that means you did the punya karma only. But even to enjoy that punya karma that you built, and you actually attach to your soul, you have to come back in a life to enjoy this punya karma. You might get a life that you will never have to worry about it because you have done that. And you might get an opportunity again to do similar things. But now the environment could be different. And uh, again, you if you keep this path punya karma together uh, until uh, you know you get the motion. So I think that's why it's saying that um, try not to attach any, whether it's path or punya karma, you you donate it in such a way, you get it in such a state of mind that it just becomes a karta for you and not a bhokta, meaning you don't absorb whether it's positive or negative to get to motion. Is the way I, I, I perceive it. Okay, so let us continue to what it, what the people who have eliminated their ego say. Remember that these are not things that we're just working on. These are things that you can eliminate anger, ego, deceit, and greed in your life right now, all of them, in whatever time you have left. It is possible for you to do that. And if you had started working on your anger when we had the first class on anger, you would have eliminated eliminated it from your life already. So here's the marker for you to start eliminating your ego. And I'm going to come back to you in maybe a year and say, if you had started working on your ego when we talked about it, you could have eliminated right now. Remember, this is not theoretical. Okay, People have eliminated their ego. And this is what they say about it. Ego is presented as an accumulation of thoughts and emotions, continuously identified it with, which creates the idea of feeling as being a separate entity. And only by disidentifying one's consciousness from it can one truly be free of suffering. And this is, goes back to a point that I've mentioned to you many times now because it was an epiphany in my life when someone told me, all this life is, is a collection of stories you tell yourself happened to this body. And you call that yourself. You call that your life. That's all it is. Um, uh, and that's what the idea that this person is presenting. But going a little bit deeper, that is, all an ego is, is an accumulation of thoughts and emotions that you identify with. Now, if you get rid of the identify with part, you can get rid of your ego. Let's look at a quote from another person. E uh, ego death is the renunciation, rejection, and ultimately the death of the need to hold on to a separate self-centered existence. Ego death is complete transcendence beyond words, beyond space-time, beyond self. There are no visions, no sense of self, no thoughts. There is only pure awareness and ecstatic freedom. The person that said this had no idea about Jainism. Probably doesn't even know about Jainism now. But what he has identified is that the characteristic of the soul is pure awareness and ecstatic freedom, exactly what Jainism said it, it says it is. And he realized it by getting rid of his ego. A sense of total annihilation. And the reason I'm telling you this is to let you know that there is something to work towards. 
there is a goal you are working towards and people have done it. So I want to try to inspire you to do so yourself. The experience of ego death seems to entail an instant merciless destruction of all previous reference points in the life of the individual. An irreversible end to one's philosophical identification with what Alan Watts called the skin-encapsulated ego. Very powerful words there. Temporary ego death as the loss of the separate self, or in the affirmative, a deep and profound merging with the transcendent other. Most of these people have not heard about Jainism. These are quotes from uh, you know, people in the West. So what must it be like? Um, remember that the feeling of I or ego is nothing more than a perception. Look around you, you perceive things. But the feeling of I is just like everything you see around you. It's a perception. Just like your senses perceive the way things look, feel, sound, smell, and taste, I is just how your brain perceives and coheres sensory information. I is a story that you tell yourself that makes the sensory data around you cohere into a meaningful experience. That doesn't make it a reality. I is merely a useful lens through which your brain can safely ignore certain sensory data to keep you alive long enough to reproduce because that is your function and that is all your brain cares about and that is all DNA cares about. I'm not talking about your soul. I'm talking about your brain which is part of your body which is separate from your soul. That is, your brain is feeding you misinformation to keep you alive long enough to reproduce. And it's a very, ego death is a very difficult experience to explain. And I'll tell you why. Because human language is totally unsuited to the explanation of an environment without something experiencing it and without something to be experienced. That is the subject-object dichotomy. The way our language is set up is that there, every sentence presumes a subject and an object. There cannot be a sentence. Your English teacher will tell you, will mark X's on your paper if you write sentences without subjects and objects. Because that is the way we experience the world. We seem to experience of the world the world as a series of objects. And we are the subject. There seems to be in our experience an inside and an outside and inside of our body and mental processes and outside. We are always the subject in our life and the entire world is always the object. So how can I put into language, these, person, these people did it very well, but how can I put into language a feeling when the subject disappears, when the I disappears? This is what people talk about when they feel at one with everything. They feel no, no separation between themselves and objects. That is, objects don't exist in reality. They are only subjects experiencing things. Let's do an example. 
because uh, this is quite uh, difficult language, right? Uh, this is an apple. I the apple is an object. It appears to be an object to me. Why? Because I have sensory data indicating that it's an object. Well, let's go through that sensory data. I look at the apple. It's red. It has a shape. It has color. Does that mean that this object exists in the outside world? Well, I cannot tell. Why? Because I'm not looking at a red apple. What am I looking at? When I say I'm looking at this apple, what is happening? We know that light is hitting the apple and it's absorbing some colors and reflecting other colors. And that those wavelengths of light travel to my eyes and my eyes record that information and they travel through the optic nerve to my brain and my brain perceives this as an apple. But where is the experience happening? The experience is happening in my brain. That is, where is the experience of seeing the apple happening? It's happening right here. It's not happening right here where the apple is. The experience of seeing the apple is happening in my brain. So let's tell ourselves, where is the experience of all the other sensory data occurring when we look at anything or when we use any of our senses? The experience is always occurring in the brain. So let me smell the apple. Does the apple have a smell? It smells like an apple. Does that mean that the apple exists in the real world? No, the only thing that my brain, where is the experience of smelling the apple happening? It's happening in the brain and all my awareness is doing is perceiving that experience in the brain. Okay? So what, we, what did we do? Sight? I'm going to do it all. It's going to be a little while. So I'm going to say the same thing five times. So I just want you to try to understand what it means when I say the experience is happening in the brain. So what did we do? Sight? Smell? Let me hear the apple. Okay? I can't perceive anything. But does that mean it's not there? No. There are things, dogs can hear things that we can't, right? Other animals see in different wavelengths than we do. That doesn't mean it's not there because I can't hear the sound of an apple. Okay. Uh, so what do we do? Sight, smell, sound. Okay. Let me feel the apple. Okay. So this is an object. Does this mean that the apple is an object that exists in the world because I can feel it? Well, what's happening? Okay, I feel things in my hand. My, that information is traveling through nerves into my brain. Where is the experience of feeling this apple occurring? It's occurring in my brain. That, has, that does not mean that the apple is an object. Okay, so let me taste this apple. Okay, so the apple has a taste. It tastes like an apple. But does that mean the apple is an object? The experience of tasting the apple is happening in my brain. It is a faculty of the mind. That is, when I look at the apple, it looks as if the apple is a certain distance from me. But that's not true. Because all I'm looking at is, all I'm perceiving are things in my brain. The experience of looking at the apple is right here. It's just that we have grown up 
to order the world around us spatially. That is, we've grown up to judge things by how far apart they are. But the experience of the apple, the experience of seeing the apple, is not happening at the distance of the apple. The experience of seeing the apple is happening right here, right in my brain. All I'm looking at, everything I perceive, all sensory information is happening right here. Remember that if I see something over there, it's not that it exists over there, is that I am perceiving light entering my eyes here, right here in my head. That's why there are no objects. That's why the subject-object distinction is an illusion. That is what you can that is what is possible to perceive if you get rid of your ego. I imagine there's going to be lots of questions on that, so I can stop talking now and uh, take some questions. I think you are concluding uh, the experience or part of the fulfill uh, about having one or, or uh, part of the universe like what you see as a soul yourself and things around you is, uh, is one thing. It's, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's, you cannot distinguish everything around you as a, something here is yourself, your soul, and here is something else. You are part of this as one piece of a puzzle, I guess, or you look at the things around you, that is part of you. Um, a lot of people have experienced that, and time to time probably you would see that too, that you, you have that, your mind tells you something, but you have a completely different understanding of that eye, or a completely different um, approach towards that thing, even though your mind tells you something else. So what you're saying is everything is perceived by our brain, everything is looked at it, everything is sensed, smelled by your brain. May may not be things because this is what we have trained ourselves our brain with. It's not necessary. That is the fact and that is the last truth. That's a very good way to put it. And one way a certain certain people have put it that have experienced this is that there is experience without thinking. And that blew me away the first time I heard it. Like, how could there be experience without thinking? Like, I don't understand that. Like, okay, so I experience looking at something. But is there an experience, let's, say this, let's continue the apple example. There is an experience that I have when looking at this apple. But I think about it, right? I think that it's red. I think that it has a shape. I think that it's this far away from me. I think that it's... and. Well-learned people, people I believe and trust, despite not fully understanding this, have said that you can have experiences without thinking about them. And I'm still, and I think that's what you're saying. And I'm still trying to wrap my head around it. I don't know everything. I'm just trying to inspire you. But there is experience without thinking. That is, I can experience this apple without thinking about the color it's red or they call it qualia right that is i can experience the redness i don't have to tell myself that there's a word called red because words are just descriptions of ideas i don't have to tell myself that oh this apple tastes sweet i can just experience it being sweet i don't have to remind myself there's a word called sweet and there is spelled s-w-e-e-t like, but how is their experience without thinking? I'm working on that myself because I do believe that's true. 
and I want to try to experience something without thinking. Has anybody done that? Has anybody had an experience without thinking? If I have to put a comment to that, I think uh, experience without thinking comes when you have already made a particular perception about something. So it's not that when we see different things, we have to think about it because sometimes, like you said, our lives are made up of stories that we have experienced. And based on that, those experiences, we have already uh, set our minds around some of the things. When we see a certain type of person, we, we tend to profile them, right? And that's inbuilt in ourselves. And, 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 and more we do that, and more our experience connects to our lives and, and it inbuilts and, and becomes part of our life, I, I think we start, you know, uh, ignore the part, thinking part and, and then it's like just an experience. Oh, I saw this and I know from my past experience it's bad, right? So I already have that. I'm not thinking about it every time when I see that particular object or person uh, or, or the situation. Uh, I'm already saying that, oh, that's bad, right? Oh, this type of car is bad. But but probably that experience occurred five years ago and and world has changed after that. Same thing with person profiling or anything. So so maybe that's where the difference can be, where we are so much uh, uh, into ourselves and, and, and we make ourselves believe in certain things in a certain way that uh, we, we, we stop analyzing and thinking about what is the real situation versus we tend to uh, make ourselves believe that what I know is the right thing. I, I think that may be the difference. One way it has been put to me is that you try to look at things from the perspective of a baby. That is, a baby doesn't know all the words that you know, doesn't categorize things in the way you categorize them. If a baby were to look at this apple, he'd look at it with eyes different from me, right? He'd first not even know that it was edible. He wouldn't know the name of this object. He would just see, he would experience the red. He wouldn't know that it's red. Uh, he would just experience it. It'd kind of look a little bit different from the other things around it. Um, and then he might try to do the things that I did, right? He might try to smell it. Or he might try to taste it and then figure out that it's edible. So in that way, maybe a baby is experiencing without thinking. And, and, and to add to that, you are exactly right, because they haven't built certain, you know, mindset about that apple. So five times you give that apple, they'll keep tasting and looking at it and different, you know, feel the shape. But after they have concluded that they don't like apple, next time, sixth time you give, they're just going to throw it on the other side, right? So so that's, that's how we all grow and make uh, ourselves believe in certain things. I think that's an easy example how you can explain this. So we kind of strayed into uh, theoretical territory there, and I wanted to do that to make you understand that this is something, eliminating your ego is something you can accomplish in your life. But certainly, let's try to um, focus on how we can use it to make our lives better. Any questions, not about... Uh, subjects and objects being illusions. Any questions about anything we talked about at all today? Or, I want to make a comment. Yeah, any comments too. Go ahead, please. Uh, basically, uh, as I think about this, I think the society we live in and the corporate world we live in 
uh, in the direction we go as as not giant. I mean, no, I'm not talking about giants as the individuals. The way we are driven, I think even if we may, uh, if we continue to live the way we are, I don't think it's possible to eliminate evil because all about it, it the the quotes you quoted, I would I would doubt any of any one of us know that person. And 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 any of the name you mentioned is is a famous person because they don't want to be famous, they don't want to be known, and it's not the direction we all are heading as a society, community, and uh, and a corporate world. So, I I think my challenge is that if anybody can, or or I'm, I'm saying is that we can't stay in the in the same path we are in and say we're gonna eliminate ego. I don't think it's possible. I don't think it's feasible that we're gonna get to that stage. The way we, we live our life. Maybe not 100%, but we can start, right? I think uh, about, about constant reinforcement about this discussion can help towards the entire direction. Um, I truly believe that. They truly talk about that with the kids. And uh, nobody's, nobody's going to get rid of it. I mean, it's, it's not going to happen overnight, it's not going to happen probably the whole life. But without working towards it, you will not be able to. The way have, we have to choose a different path. And that's the day the real shift will occur in eliminating ego. And the one I know it, or when I can think of, is, uh, is Big Shot. And that can help you make a big shift. Because every time we we continue doing this, uh, or make a little shift, we'll be pulled back uh, with the corporate uh, and and society too. It's not just corporate. I mean, you know, they are they're trying their best. Imagine that you go into a meeting, and uh, you you have you know five people. One person sits on the side, as probably the most knowledgeable person in the in the meeting, but the person who comes with uh, very well dressed, nice, uh, you can just tell from the person. A face that this person is wearing, you know, Armani or Gucci uh, jackets and uh, a nice and, you know, talks to in the meeting, who, who, who is everybody going to remember for, for that? Maybe that person knows nothing about it, writes some notes with a nice pen and, and things. And, but at the end of the day, I think that's part of it. And the, the reason I'm giving this example is I think because there is an ego associated with it, whether it's a position, whether it's a, a title, whether it's you know, doing something that you really believe in, uh, that I need to be nicely dressed. Uh, so, I, again, I'm, I'm going maybe too far here, but that's that's my thought here, that it's very hard to get to a point, to a level, that we don't think of this kind of, you know, completely uh, uh, the feeling that you have described uh, in the world we live in. Sure, but I think that that uh, goes back to what we said at the very top, right? That person is doing what it takes to be confident, right? Doing what it takes to be successful in the corporate atmosphere. But the person who was sitting on the side that knows everything, who are we to say that just because people listen to the confident person and not the person with the actual knowledge, who are we to say that the quality of life of the person with the actual knowledge is worse than the quality of life of the very confident person that people listen to and that people follow. 
So thank you, every. Go ahead. I agree you should not be the judge, but the way the perception and, uh, you know, the way I, I think of in terms of kids, you know, we are trying to make them confident and, and somehow we're, some, you know, doing that by ego, whether we say, oh, you're, you're doing really well, uh, you know, if it's soccer, it's school, whichever it is, uh, it, it's, it's the way how, as a society, we're trying to push in that direction. Right. How do we teach them what we know ourselves, that we should not be attached to the outcome of meritorious deeds, that we should do meritorious deeds uh, without being invested in their outcome? How do we teach our children that? Well, I hate to end it on a question, but I think that uh, we're going to have to this time. <laughs> Thank you, everybody, for attending today. I really appreciate um, you constantly giving me an hour of your week, and I definitely don't take that for granted. Thank you very much. Thank you, David. Thank you, everyone. Thanks. Thank you, David. Thank you, everyone. Thanks.